Welcome to Micro, I'm Drew Hawkins, and this episode is part of an interview series for Miami Book Fair, where members of Team Micro, that's myself, Dylan Evers, Maymay Kaufman, and Kirsten Renault, interview authors appearing at the fair about their work. For more information about their programming and to check out the incredible roster of authors appearing this year, visit MiamiBookFair.com. And be sure to follow them at Miami Book Fair and hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022 for more updates. Now, back to the show. Welcome to Micro. I'm Maymay Kaufman, and today I'm speaking with Clavis Natara. We'll be talking about her debut novel, Neruda in the Park, which came out this past spring from Ballantine Books at Penguin Random House. To start the show, we've asked her to select and read a passage from the book. So here's Clavis Natara reading from Neruda in the Park. Enjoy. Eusebia willed herself to stop the sensation of movement of falling and twirling through the air in opposite directions at once, a nauseous feeling. Usually, this was the moment that forced her to close her eyes and seek lower ground. Not today. On weak knees, she walked to where the women stood and inhaled deeply as she leaned over. Beneath them, it was as if a bomb had exploded. Bricks, pipes, concrete, refrigerators, stoves, even farther away, discarded toys, a doll with matted blonde hair, a blue truck missing a wheel. She was puzzled at the sharpness of her vision. How could they have done all of that in three days? How could they possibly have gotten that done so fast? One of her friends asked. They discarded that old building to make room for what? Her friends asked. Eusebia never imagined there would be this much space. I have an idea on how to stop all of this from happening, she said. The tongues looked at her curiously. What if we just scare everyone into thinking this neighborhood is really bad? She said. The women smiled, thinking it a joke, brilliant in its simplicity. How would we do that, they asked. Eusebia could clearly see the unvoiced thought that it would be too easy to work. Eusebia spoke in a confident way, as if this conversation had already happened. She explained she meant recruiting their neighbors who would act out crimes throughout the neighborhood with other volunteers who'd be the victims of these crimes. You mean fake crimes, they asked. No, not fake, real. Could be crazy enough to move to a neighborhood amid a crime spree. What kind of crimes, they asked. Eusebia was quiet. She had come up with a list, but she knew if they participated, helped formulate it, they'd be in. What would scare you, she asked. What would be bad enough? This is the kind of idea that can destroy a community, they said. That can save it, she corrected. The women stared at her, worried. They understood she was serious. She'd moved too fast. Eusebia extended her arm around the neighborhood, lovingly sweeping all they could see. Over by their side of the park, Raul's shipping place. The cleaners owned by the chinitos who were born in the yard the liquor store, the dentist. She wrapped her arm around herself, signaling what they couldn't see, the smell of water boiling for root vegetables, of meat sizzling in pans, laundry being folded, children being kissed, phone calls back home to people who needed help, who would be lost without the support of those who had traveled here. We can just come up with a list of things people are scared of, she said. The women exchanged looks. 
They spoke to each other with the simple speed of a blink. But now Eusebia was in on it, an eavesdropper. Questions floated among all four of them. Could it work? Was it worth trying? What else as an alternative? It was true. Fear would work. Fear always worked. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I am so glad that you read that passage. I wasn't sure where you, I was like, she could pick anywhere in this novel to read from, but I'm so glad you picked that one because it, you know, right there, it sets up so much of the the plot and the action of the story. Yeah. Um, I love reading this, this part of the book because I feel like in some ways, a lot of the work that we do in earlier chapters as writers to just establish the characters and the stakes. Um, for me, this is really when I like stepped on the gas. I was like, let's go. This is where it starts. <laughs> I felt that as a reader. I felt that like when we got to that part, I was like, okay, I'm down with this plan. <laughs> let's enact it. <laughs> okay. So my first question um, actually is coming from your acknowledge acknowledgement section. Mm -hmm. So in your acknowledgements, you said that you wrote this novel over the course of 15 years and feared this book wouldn't find her readers. So first, I want to say thank you for not stopping because this book certainly found a reader in me. I cried my way through it with both joy and heartbreak. It's clear in the complex narrative the absolutely endearing characters and vivid setting that you put so much care and time into this novel, all the way down to the rich language at the line level. I was amazed from a craft point of view while also being carried away with the story. And so I'm curious, what was it like to work on a book for such a long period? Did your vision of the story and its characters change over time? Well, thank you so much for such a wonderful reaction to the book. You're like, my my heart is singing as I'm listening to you react to the book. <laughs> because there were so many times when I feared that I would not be able to pull it off. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, this novel, Neruda on the Park, is a story of this community and this family in crisis. And so, you know, when the book opens, it's really... um establishing this neighborhood as an, as one of the few neighborhoods in all of New York City that somehow has escaped the grasp of gentrification. And, you know, within the first page of, of the novel, we hear, right, like the destruction of a building that signals great change. And, you know, as the novel progresses, then we meet Eusebia, who's a mother and doting pillar in her community, and her upwardly mobile daughter, Luz, who's, you know, it feels kind of ambivalent. She feels like this is inevitable. Of course, the neighborhood's going to change. Of course, everything that has happened before has happened. Um, and, you know, we meet the rest of the characters who all have um, a great deal of desires and stakes. Um, I, you know, I really didn't know if I was going to be able to pull it off because part of what I wanted to play with is this idea of loving something so much that you end up putting it at greater risk. And that's what happens with Eusebia when she comes up with this plot that I just read from. Um, she comes up with this idea that's like, yeah, let's scare people. You know, let's give in to people's biggest fears of what it means to come into a marginalized community. And so, yeah, it was such a long, long road um, to get to this point where I get to hold this beautiful book and I get to talk to people like you who um, who have, you know, received this so warmly. Um, and, you know, what I would say about the journey itself is that the story itself didn't change. Like all along, that was the idea that the mother came up with this kind of 
insane idea to resist the change to her community mm-hmm. and that because of the trauma she has lived through everything escalates and gets so out of control um so that was always the idea but the execution of it was very different I mean I started out telling the story as a first person narrative it was very much like a coming of age story with Luz just running around the city having lots of sex and falling in love with rich men you know <laughs> like love which parts. I mean it was a great entry point to me because I started writing this at 24 when I was in the in the city right running around um And then, you know, like what's really interesting about this book is that the more that I try to temper down Osevia's story and the more that I try to just focus on like the more linear and um, what I consider to be less disturbing part of the story, the less the book worked. And so, Mm. you know, now in hindsight, I can say, yeah, I think there was like quite a lack of courage on my part to confront some of the tougher scenes, like how do you convince people to become criminals and to become victims of criminals? So some of those scenes, which, you know, I only wrote in the last couple of years, um, is is really part of the reason why I think the book actually did manage to to find an agent. And I managed to find an editor um, because I think the the heart of this book is really the struggle that Osebe is going through to hold on to her home. Mm hmm. I think that'll be a comfort to hear for a lot of writers out there who feel like, oh, I couldn't spit out a novel in a year, so I can't do this. Um, So I always love hearing about who authors who live with the story for a while. Um, I think that's just so beautiful. Okay, so um, my next question is a little broad. So I would like you to please answer it as specifically as you would like, where you'd like to take it. Um, Were there any expectations you were hoping to subvert with this novel? like um, about immigrants, about the mother-daughter relationship, gentrification. What did you want readers to see in a new or more nuanced light? Oh, I love this question so much. Um, thank you so much, Meme. I feel like for me, this um, there was a lot that I was trying, you know, to subvert um, from the title of the book, which I think, you know, it's going to pull people in thinking, ooh, Pablo Neruda, let's go. I love the poetry of Pablo Neruda. Um, That's what got me. Your title (laughs) first got me just with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking a lot about this is a book about womanhood, you know? And so for me, it was really interesting to put... um, that you know the name of of a poet that I myself deeply love but who also is very flawed and I feel like you know in American society we don't talk as much I mean this year marks 49 years since Pablo Neruda died and we very it's very rare I mean in Pablo Neruda's own um, memoir he talks about I mean he committed rape you know he raped Mm -hmm. a woman and we don't often talk about that Um, and so for me like there's something that's really interesting um, about the ways in which we can kind of put a certain artists on pedestals and not really talk about how flawed they were during their lives. And I have a great deal of admiration for Pablo Neruda's work. I mean, there are lines of poetry that um, are section headers for me because I feel like the work of Pablo Neruda and who he was as an artist as well. I mean, he stood up for... Um, you know, just accessibility of art. And he always believed that no matter your station in society, you should always be able to like pick up a poem and know what's going on. So kind of tearing down that eliticism that I think sometimes still lives within the literary landscape, Um, you know, but also like acknowledging that there was quite a bit of toxic masculinity in just being a man with power in the world. So for me, like that was one of the entry points into the story. 
the most important though for me is really thinking about what it means to be an immigrant. And yes, the story takes place in the United States, but I think about this in a really broad and global term because, you know, I've traveled quite a bit and wherever you go as a black immigrant or as a person who looks different than the dominant culture, wherever you live, there's always this sense people have that as an immigrant, first of all, you should just be grateful because we let you in, right? Even if you've been born here, mind you, people feel like there should be this gratitude. And then second of all, there's this, I think there's quite a bit of hostility and quite a bit of abuse that immigrants have to live through. And more often than not, I think there's like this overwhelming idea people have that immigrants were all just passing through that Mm. we long for our birthplaces. And there are some people, right? Vladimir, who is the husband of Eusebia and father to lose is building this mansion and he cannot wait to get the hell out of Dodge, right? Like he's a cop. His his life is pretty difficult. He'd much rather be doing something else like writing poetry or building homes. Um, But he's had to, you know, live a life of sacrifice also for his family. Um, But the fact is that the overwhelming majority of people in this immigrant community consider the United States home. And for me, having Eusebia as one of the main characters, who's an older woman who, you know, didn't have the easiest transition into American society, claim the space as her own and claim it as a birthright, right? Like to be like, I have worked and sacrificed and this is now the place that I get to call home. Um, and Luz as well. I mean, she's younger, but she's also someone who wasn't born in this country. And she thinks about the Dominican Republic as a beautiful place that houses the history of her family. But neither of these women think of, of the Dominican Republic as home. And for me, that was a very important part of how I wanted to subvert some of the immigrant stories um, mm-hmm. that I've read, where I feel like that perspective was just people saying, I'm fighting for this piece of my home and no matter what people think of me as an outsider I'm gonna fight as hard as I can to to keep it and to name it home for me that was very important yes um and I just have to say one moment that really struck me with um Eusebia's and it's just like one sentence it's just this one little part where um when she first learns about this house that her um as you said, this mansion that her husband and daughter have secretly been building as a surprise. Um, one of her that one of her anxieties about it is that it might make her feel like a gentrifier in her home country, and that that was amazing for me to think of it that way. I was like, wow, um, because what are the ways that gentrification kind of can take over? But it's not just race or nationality, but also wealth. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like I was I was so curious about her anxiety about feeling like one of these people. She's fighting a Nothar Park, like the fear of becoming one somehow. Yeah. And and she's right. I mean, her husband actually did this place, Sancho Panza, right? This older man who used to live in, in her backyard when she was a kid. And so I think that being an immigrant is is really like a bizarre and unsettling experience on so many levels. I mean, there are so many people, including in my own family, who live in neighborhoods here that are lacking in services, lacking in luxury. And, you know, they dedicate their whole lives to building homes, you know, in our case, in the Dominican Republic. And it's like they live like 
rich people for like a couple of weeks a year, you know, and then they come back here and they live in circumstances that are, you know, a lot less luxurious or, or, you know, comfortable. And I've just always been really struck by that. Like this idea that an immigrant, there's no other a group of people I think that understands class, both ascension and descent the way immigrants understand it. Because you can really get on a plane, travel for three hours and live a life of luxury that you will never have access to in mm-hmm. in in the countries where you reside. And I think that's fascinating to me. And and for Eusebia, she has this kind of longing, right? For um to be at peace. And and displacement is is really something that jars her. So for me it was also important to have that be an experience that the reader experiences in the book. You know, some of mm-hmm. the plot swings for me I wanted it to feel like a neighborhood where you walk you know in New York City you walk down a block and it's like watch out you make a right or a left and you could be in a completely different world and I wanted that feeling of like unexpected twist to to take place throughout throughout the book oh well I think mission very much accomplished (laughs) yes I I was I was there for I was there for all the twists that came um, it, it was truly like a page turning experience for me. And um, part of what made it so like, really like, I mean, literally page turning for me was all these different levels of tension. So this is my next question. And it's sort of a messy craft writing process question. So take it how you want. <laughs> I love those. <laughs> um, okay, good. This is full yet. Um So there is so much, what I would say, delicious tension in this book. There's the intimate kind between loved ones, you know, like um, sexual partners, mother, daughter, husband, wife, you know, these intimate kind of tensions, but then a larger kind between communities and races and classes of people, but then also this bigger universal tension between luck, both good and bad. And what people can control and accomplish themselves. Um, how did you balance all of these themes of tension in the writing process? Oh, well, again, this is like a dream come true for me talking to you. Because I feel like, you know, it's it's all the things that I was trying to pull off. And I feel like, oh, my God, you totally got it. Like, you got this book. Um, I told you, I, I am a reader. I'm This book found its reader. In me. Oh, oh, I love it so much. Well, let me just first say, and especially for those writers that might be out there who, like, maybe aren't as good at plotting. Like, this part of the reason that this book didn't, like, start out. <laughs> like, you know, it took me so long to find... Um, Um, a way through to publishing is because I didn't know how to plot you know I had this Mm -hmm. story and I know the idea was compelling because anytime I queried like people right away reacted and asked for the whole book but then they would write back and be like oh it moves a little slowly moves a little slowly Mm -hmm. and so you know I remember taking going to take a workshop with you know with a writer that I have a great deal of respect Matt Johnson and Matt Johnson is herald in like the literary streets as like a manuscript doctor like he's someone that really helps students and writers think through plot and I was fortunate that I went and took a class with him at Brett Loaf um you know maybe like four or five years ago and I like plotted out like I just explained the whole book and you know he called out to me some of the issues that existed and in some ways he gave me some suggestions that I didn't really um, follow but very largely he helped me to think about the book in terms of like tension and escalation 
and propulsion. So what I really started thinking about, and for me, then it became very exciting because, you know, thinking about a plot and all these intersecting lives, for me, it was very complicated and difficult to do it. But then when I started thinking about, well, if this is really about desire and what a character wants, and then every obstacle that comes along in a story is like trying to keep them from it. So, you know, like Luz at the beginning of the story, she wants to live on the Upper West Side. She wants to like be able to buy an apartment. 79th by You know what Park. I mean? Yeah, it's like yeah. you walk around those beautiful buildings and you're like, who lives there? <laughs> you know? And so that's what she wants. But, you know, she feels obligation to her parents for everything they've done. So she's working like a mad woman and giving her money to her dad to build this house. And, you know, and then she's, you know, at work and trying to keep up with these women who are incredibly successful and who just spend all their money on beautiful things that again, it's like tensions within ourselves. And for me, creating tension that really comes out of society and like how some of us are at a disadvantage. And even if we attain education and even if we do really well and get these great jobs, there's always going to be this tension for us because we don't have a net underneath us. So Luz, no matter how much money she makes, if she's spending it and giving it, like she, it's just never going to, there's no hedge fund, right? There's no uh, trust fund. Like she's not going to be able to just kind of. Um, safety net. Like, right. She's not going to be able to make that happen. And so that's the way that I really started thinking about it. And so for me, the, the pivotal point in, in creating tension and learning about propulsion was also learning that anything that happens in the novel had to be tied to the desire of the two main characters. And so I, I wanted to like write about gentrification. And honestly, it was only in the last three years that I was like, but what does Elsevia want? Oh, she doesn't want to leave. You know, for part of this book, she was kind of like not really voicing, even to me within the book, there was a silence that existed in her desire to like not go. And so figuring that out, figuring out that actually part of what's driving her to save the community is her inability to voice a desire to not leave on this retirement plan that she's made with her husband became like a critical part. And so then after that, it just became easier to be like, well, yeah, the crimes that she comes up with should escalate because the crimes Mm -hmm. were all the same, but they happen like in a disordered way um, in which like the stakes weren't um, getting higher each time. And so for me, it's like, yeah, like she would become more and more impatient because she's not getting the results she wants, or maybe she gets some results she wants and that further encourages her to take bigger risks. Um, but then, so then no it, one notices, no yeah. camera crews come. So then mm-hmm. she's got to up it. Yes, yes, exactly. So that, and to me, there was a point at which I think the book became very joyful because I mean, this is like a very screwed up way to think about saving your home. You know, it's like, but I was rooting her on. (laughs) Which is like important too. like, you got to love these characters and I love them. So I think that helped too. Oh, I, I, I loved them too. I read one review um, that was of course largely positive, but there was one line about like, but how realistic that all of her neighbors would go along with these crazy plans And I thought about it. And then I was like, reading it from her point of view, she had me sold. 
I was sold on all of her plans. I was like, I have no doubt she could have convinced these people to do these things because her voice only gets stronger <laughs> and, yeah. and more powerful as, you know, as it's going on. Oh, I, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I mean, I think growing up in a in an immigrant community, you know, I mean, the kinds of sacrifices people have to make for each other, for the safety of their families. Um, you know, I mean, I know people who sent their children across borders, you know, without them. Like, think about that. I mean, think about sending your child with like a coyote or, you know, it's, yeah. I just think that sometimes people, yeah. and, and and I also think I could have done more, right? Like I could have done more to establish kind of like the, what it means in a in a community like mine for people to feel like there's no where no place to go and i did really decide to focus the story on Eusebia and Luz and you know whatever snippets we hear from their friends that from Eusebia's friends the tongues um it was very focused so for me it was it was very much like tailoring the story to these two characters and i can understand why some people might have thought um you know, they, they couldn't buy it. But I do think that anyone who has been around an immigrant community that understands the sacrifices parents make every day, this isn't that far of a thought that people would be mm -hmm. willing to do um, insane things because people, immigrants are forced to do insane things every day to, mm -hmm. you know, ensure our survival in this country mm -hmm. and in countries around the world. Well, what you just said actually leads in perfectly to my next question, which is kind of a craft question, but leads so closely what you were saying you have a full cast of fascinating characters in this book and it's told from three points of view we get Luz, Asubia, and the tongues yes and um I am curious what made you decide on these voices to tell the story of this neighborhood because you mentioned earlier you thought it was going to be just a, a single narrator, like a linear single narrator, but you broke it up in this really inventive way. And I'm curious, what made you decide on that? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was really um, a set of like failures. And I love saying that to people, like I failed a lot writing yes. this book because there was one version of this book that was the entire thing was the tongues, like told from a first person plural. And in yeah. that one, we got to meet every single one of the characters who like volunteered for a crime or volunteered to be a criminal. And yeah. that one was really a community chorus, right? But it just yeah. didn't work. I didn't think it worked. Um, and like I mentioned before, the first person from Luces just didn't work because she she didn't have insight into what her mother was doing. There were just all these random things happening. And she was like, what's happening here? Um, so it didn't quite work. And so ultimately, for me, I ended up recognizing that perspective to me is really like a way in which we we kind of guide the camera. And I wanted the readers to become incredibly um connected to Eusebia and to Luz as the main characters. And I wanted through them for us to understand the community. And so in a certain way, like the first person felt too limiting. I also tried mm -hmm. writing their sections in first and I felt it was too limited. Um, so, you know, a third person close to me felt felt really natural, a natural mm -hmm. way to both be close within their consciousness and then step back a bit. And then with the tongues, the the first plural for me, I just love first plural. I just think it's such a neat way to like honor so these intended. strong older women who like kick ass, but who are also limited in their perspective, you know? And so mm -hmm. a lot of it for me was picking a, a point of view that helped 
to connect to the character arc and the transformation that each character would go through. So that by the time we get to the end of the book and we see the tongues talking about Luz, there's a stark difference from the way Luz spoke about the way they treated her in the first chapter, you know? Absolutely. That was so heartwarming for me at the end. I felt a little nervous for Luz because we leave her story leaves a little open-ended, very positive, but a little open-ended on what she's going to do. But it ending with the tongues leaving out one beach chair in front of the building so that she can come and sit with them. That Oh, it was, yeah, it was such a comfort knowing I'm like, she's got the tongues on her side now and them trading <laughs> books. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> I'm running low on time, so I'll stop fangirling. Um, so my, no, don't, uh, don't stop. I, I, this is my favorite <laughs> part. Um, well, you can't lose me now. You got a fan for life. <laughs> I love um, it. Last question that we're asking um, everyone that we're interviewing is, um, what is, uh, what were you reading as you wrote Neruda on the Park? Now I know you were writing it over a course of long time, so I'm sure you read a lot of things over 15 years. But were there any texts or even music that stood out to you? as like sort of companion text in your writing process. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm a huge fan of debut fiction. Anybody who wants to hang with me, come follow me on Instagram. Um, I give away debut books every month of the favorite books I love. And so, you know, I would say like for the last four years where I think it was when I really went into hyper overdrive to like try to make make this book happen. Um, I was I was reading. I always um reread like old favorites so Toni Morrison is a huge influence on me Julia Alvarez you know there are fantastical elements in the book and Gabriel Garcia Marquez it's like my godfather when it comes to that I read a lot of Pablo Neruda I love poetry too and so for me like those are kind of the pillars um but yeah I love um propulsion and stories that are really daring and wild so Robert Jones Jr. Um, the Prophets, Donnie Walton's, The Final Revival of Opal and Neff. I love Mateo Askinpour's Black Buck. I thought, you know, Toxic Workplace, Sakia Dalila Harris, The Other Black Girl, um, Naima Custer's Halsey Street. And she published two books while I was like, you know, on this, on this journey in the last four years. So her second book, um, What's Mine and Yours is also just riveting. I'm a huge fan of Edwidge Danticat. Um, so, you know, her last collection of stories, everything inside, um, I, I think it's stunningly masterful. Um, yeah. And like Angie Cruz, you know, Dominicana came out and it's dealing with like a woman that's around the same age as Eusebia. Oh, I love that you have it right there in your bookshelf. <laughs> oh, how not to drown in a glass of water. I mean, can you believe her? She's a genius. Angie Cruz is just like the, the form of this. I want uh, to see this as a Broadway one woman show. Oh my like, God, I would love that. like that way. I, would, I think it could translate so well. I would love that. But yeah, you know, I just, I really love books. And I think one of the things that kept me company for for during like the heartache of trying to write a book and it's really difficult um for some of us you know it it happens really really quickly and it's beautiful because you see these stars right in the literary mm -hmm. landscape just take off and some of my friends that has happened to and I loved it um but for me like that wasn't my journey it was very slow and I'm just so grateful that there's so many beautiful, powerful books that kept me company during such a, at times, a lonely and hard journey. Oh, 
Well, that's wonderful. And thank you for giving me a reading list to go to next. <laughs> um, all right. So we are about out of time. So I have to say, be sure to stop by and see Clevis Nadaria at Miami Book Fair, November 13th through 20th in beautiful Miami, Florida, and pick up a copy of her debut novel, Neruda in the Park, available now at your favorite bookstore and Penguin Random House Audio. Clevis Nadaria, thank you so much for stopping by. Oh, this was such a pleasure. And thank you for having me. This has been just an absolute joy getting to talk to you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And I just hope as, as a fellow writer and a huge fan of your work, I'm excited for the next and I hope to talk to you more in the future. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs>